This episode is brought to you by Galactic Fed, the award-winning digital marketing agency that I personally use and whose co-founders have both been interviewed on The Maverick Show, Zach Boyette and Irina Popik. Now, I personally use Galactic Fed for search engine optimization and conversion rate optimization, but they also offer services for email marketing, social media, website design, paid media, and more. They're basically a full-service end-to-end growth marketing solution. And they were founded by two digital nomads as a fully remote company, which now has 150 staff in 27 countries, so they understand remote entrepreneurs. What I love about working with Galactic Fed is, first of all, their team is fun and amazing, and I'm smiling and laughing on pretty much every call that we have, but I also love their scientific approach to growth marketing. They've worked with companies of all sizes and industries, ranging from edible arrangement to PixArt, and they've developed battle-tested digital marketing solutions that produce results that are scalable and repeatable. And Galactic Fed now wants to help you grow your business. They're offering you a completely free marketing plan for your business, which you can get at galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And if you do decide to work with them, like I do, just mention The Maverick Show and you'll get 10% off your first month of services. To learn more and get your completely free marketing plan, just go to galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And now here's a clip from what's coming up on today's episode. I crave it and I feel like I get kind of a, a high off of it almost. And I mean, what it does first and foremost, it just, it opens your mind, right? And you just create these valuable connections with people that you would never have met otherwise. If you stay in your comfort zone, you're just never going to meet these people. It's inspiration for my photography. There's nothing I love more in this world than taking photos. And so seeing new places and having that kind of fresh content, just it gives me life. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. I guess today is Lauren Carey. She is a location-independent content creator, world traveler, and founder of the blog, GirlGoneAbroad.com. Since leaving her commercial real estate job in Boston in 2014, she has been working remotely while traveling the world and has now been to over 50 countries. She documents her journey on her blog and on her Instagram channel where she has over 33,000 subscribers. Lauren has been featured in Oprah Magazine, BuzzFeed, Elle, The Huffington Post, GQ, Vogue, Forbes Magazine, and the list goes on. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that glowing intro. You deserve a glowing intro. I am super excited to have you on the show. And we have agreed to do a wine-induced interview. We have been planning this 
as a wine night for quite some time. We are not in person, unfortunately, but we have both just opened a bottle of wine in our respective locations. So let's talk about where that is and what we are drinking. I am recording this today from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina, on the east coast of the United States. And I have just opened a bottle of Barbaresco, which is a really nice red wine. It's made from the Nebbiolo grape, and it comes from the Piedmont region of Italy. This is actually one of the four original Italian wines that received the DOCG designation over 40 years ago, and it is tasting really nice. So where are you and what are you drinking tonight? Yeah, so I am hanging out in Madrid, Spain right now. First time here, just got here yesterday. And as it turns out, you can get all kinds of red wine, very, very cheap. I don't want to say I skimped out, but you know, I went to the store and it's like there's nothing over seven euros. So this is a Ribera del Duero. It tastes great. Yeah. And for folks that haven't spent much time in Europe, for Americans in particular, for example, the cost of wine in Europe and in Spain in particular is probably about 25% of the price of wine in the United States. So if you go out to a restaurant in the U.S. and you order a glass of wine that is $16 for the glass, that same glass of Spanish wine, you could probably get in Madrid for about $4, right? The quality of wine to cost of wine ratio in Europe and in Spain in particular is just unbelievable. Hell yes. I mean, it was a struggle to even find the six euro bottle, so. That's amazing. Yeah, I try to get to Spain at least once a year and I go to all different parts of Spain because they're all just so amazing. The last serious wine trip I did to Spain, I did a wine tour of the Rioja region, which was just incredible. I still dream about it. So tons of love for all different parts of Spain. But this, I understand, is your first time in Madrid, right? It is. Yeah, I just came from the Canary Islands, spent a little bit of time in Gran Canaria, and then went over to Fuerteventura, both of which had little wine tours. So I've been doing a lot of whining and dining lately. That's a very, very, very good thing to be doing in Spain. Okay, so I promised I would give you some recommendations for Madrid. Now, there's obviously a lot of very high profile, well-known tourist things to do in Madrid, of course. But I am going to give you a recommendation that is definitely not well-known, but it was the highlight of my trip to Madrid. So you and I are both super big street art fans. And Madrid is not necessarily known as a major street art destination city in Europe, right? Compared to, for example, Barcelona, which has a much higher profile, much more well-known street art scene than does Madrid, okay? Now, I went to Madrid, and there is a street art tour in Madrid, and I did go on that street art tour, but... What happened was when I was on the tour, so of course I'm talking to the tour guide, you know, and 
connecting with him, getting to know him and talking to him about street art and telling him I've been to all these other cities and, you know, seeing this different street art and we're having all this conversation, sort of getting to know him and stuff across the whole tour. So by the end of the tour, he basically confides in me and he says, listen, he goes, I did not show you guys the best street art in Madrid today. And that's because I can't take you to see the best street art in Madrid. He says, basically, the best street art in Madrid is in this secret underground location. And he's like, I cannot take 20 tourists in there. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's like, but, you know, since you're such a street art fan, he said, I will tell you where it is. And if you go, you know, by yourself tomorrow or something like that, you can probably get in and you can see it. And he said, it's going to blow your mind. And I was like writing down the address, making sure I have it correct. Like, where is this place? He's like, yeah. And he explains it's basically in this abandoned tobacco factory, uh, which has ostensibly been reclaimed by artists okay. and turned into, it's like a 16,000 square foot building, right? It has a courtyard in the back and everything. And it's basically been reclaimed by artists and ostensibly turned into like a street art museum. I mean, I went to this place, was able to get in, you go downstairs and it is just a treasure trove of some of the most incredible street art. And I mean, it is raw stuff, like searing social and political critiques, right, against police violence and the Spanish government and capitalism and all of this kind of stuff, which is the nature of graffiti art originally, right? One of the attributes of the art form of graffiti is that it is supposed to be illicit, right? It's not sponsored by a corporation or the government or you get paid to do a mural on somebody's business. Like that is something different, right? This <laughs> is the raw original form of graffiti art, which is not filtered by governments and corporations and things like that and allows particularly marginalized groups to use that art form as a medium for expressing counter hegemonic and anti-establishment narratives. And this place is just, I mean, it's amazing. And it's basically an underground, figuratively and literally underground sort of hidden secret location that you really need to know exactly where it is in order to get there. And I will DM you the exact address so you can put it on a map and you can go find it. Were there other people down there or was it just you? No, there is other people inside. So basically like it's been taken over ostensibly by artists, right? And they've turned it okay. into, I guess, technically you could call it sort of like an artistic community center type thing, right? Where there are art studios and things like that, but they're not trying to like commercialize it and advertise it to tour groups and charge admission to get in. Like it's not that kind of vibe, right? It's like an underground art studio with this just incredible trove of street art you know, graffiti just all through the bottom level and then out into the courtyard. It was just really spectacular and definitely the highlight of my Madrid trip. Awesome. Well, I would love to check that out. Yeah. So that's amazing. And I also want to open this up and talk about the last time that you and I hung out in person, which was in Jericoquara, Brazil at the end of 2018. I cannot believe it has been that long. God, it feels like yesterday. I know. Yeah. And I would love for you to share a little bit about your impressions 
of Jerry in general and then talk about that amazing night that we had and what you remember about that. Yeah. So everyone would call it Jerry, right? Or Jerry. And I felt like it was kind of this weird oasis that you can only get there by what, like four by four cars or like four wheelers because this entire town is surrounded by sand dunes or the sea. So it was really difficult to get into. And the whole town was made of sand. So even the shop floors were sand. You could literally just run around barefoot. And there were great cafes. There was that one rooftop bar. It was kind of a circus. There were mermaids swimming in a pool and people, you know, throwing fire and hula hooping and all kinds of crazy shit. (laughs) I've been telling people about that. And it is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. It's basically a rooftop nightclub that only operates from 5.30 p.m. till 8 p.m. And then everybody has to leave. And during that two and a half hour period of operation, it is a full-blown nightclub. DJ, everybody's dancing and sweating, going full speed. And you've got the flair bartenders standing on the bar, juggling the bottles back and forth with each other. You've got all of these acrobats that are juggling fire and doing acro yoga and mermaids swimming in tanks. I mean, it is just completely bonkers. And then at Mm -hmm. 8 p.m., everything shuts down. Everybody has to leave. They're all coming out of the club drenched in sweat from dancing for two straight hours. And then everybody just wanders over to the restaurant and has dinner. I mean, it was unbelievable. I know. I would kill for an evening like that again. But yeah, so there was one night where you know, a handful of us decided to go out and get some food and wine. And I think we got ourselves relatively tipsy and we were very close to the beach. And we discovered that there was a meteor shower happening that night. Now, because, you know, this town is where it is, there's no real light pollution and you have one of the clearest skies on earth. So that night we just went and laid down literally on our backs on the beach and watched the most incredible meteor shower I've ever seen. I remember every two seconds, somebody, oh, wow, because these shooting stars were just like flying across the sky. It was amazing. And we had the best crew for that. And Maverick Show listeners actually know a bunch of people in that crew because it was like Mm -hmm. me, you, Krista Romano, who's been on the show, was with us. Sean Tierney, who's been on the show, was with us. And we just had like a small crew of like... I don't know, six or seven people. And we were just out there laying on the sand. Everything was totally dark. And we were just like watching meteors. It was insane. And after that meteor shower, we then wandered over to Kuiperina Street, which is basically this sand path right by the beach, which has 40 or so consecutive Kuiperina stands all right next to each other all just serving Caipirinhas. <laughs> and so the lifestyle there is basically that you go to this club from 5.30 till 8. Then you go to the dinner from 8 till 10. Then you go down to the beach and you go to Caipirinha Street and you drink Caipirinhas and then it just repeats every single day. It was insane. Which is just like the most dangerous drink on earth. It's like tastes so good and there's just so much alcohol in there. Done. Yeah, for sure. Caipirinhas are really quite something. They're amazing. And Caipirinhas in Brazil, in particular, are really spectacular. Every time I go to Brazil, I order one as soon as possible after arriving. And then I'm just like, 
Oh yes, I'm in Brazil. <laughs> so that is so awesome. All right, well, I want to now, Lauren, go all the way back because I want to go into a little bit of your origin story as to how you got to the point in your life where you are laying on the beach watching meteor showers and drinking caipirinhas because it wasn't always that way. So I know that you grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, in the northeastern part of the United States, and would love to hear a little bit just about your journey as you were coming up and getting into your career and all that kind of stuff. Where did the interest in travel come from and what led up to this? Yeah. So I apologize because I've gotten used to saying Boston just for convenience sake. You know, it's an easy place on a map to pinpoint. But in reality, um, I grew up about 45 minutes west of the city. Very, very small suburban town with probably like 5,000 people. But I did work in the city for the two years before I went abroad. And mind you, like no one in my family travels. My dad just got a passport last year. My mom just got a passport to come visit me because she knew I wasn't coming home anytime soon. You know, I have a sister. She doesn't have a passport. Like nobody has this love for travel. I don't know where I came from. But, um, I guess the the first travel experience that I had really was studying abroad. And I think this happens to a lot of people. It's our first time out into the world. And all of a sudden we're like, holy shit, I can go to Australia for four months? Like, what is this? And that's exactly what I did. Junior year of college, did a semester in Australia. Still hands down one of the best, you know, four months of my life. I had no no responsibilities other than going to class which even then that was kind of optional. <laughs> so that was what kind of planted, you know, the travel bug. But then, you know, after that, came back, finished school. Um, I had a degree in English and psychology. Why? Because I liked those topics. No other reason. And I actually, I worked with autistic kids for a few years just out of college in early intervention programs. So going into the homes of kids under the age of three and helping them kind of try to catch up to their peers. There was a bit of a burnout with that after a few years. And then I ended up getting a commercial real estate job in Boston and I was able to move out of my mom's house. So that was exciting. So I go into Boston I'm doing this commercial real estate thing and it was good as far as corporate America jobs go. Um, good pay. There were some perks. I liked the people that I worked with for photography purposes. I had access to the rooftops of major skyscrapers in Boston because I knew all the engineers. So that was pretty sick, <laughs> but it was kind of a thankless job. You have people calling you complaining. You're chasing down tenants for rent. My office had no windows. Yeah. Didn't really fulfill me. And so it ended up happening, and this guy probably doesn't even realize that he was the catalyst for my entire life right now, but I had moments that were a bit slow at work, and I was on Facebook Messenger at my desk, as you do, and I'm chatting with this guy that I've never even met, because do you remember like 2005, right? Facebook comes out, everybody's friending everybody. You didn't even have to know them, you just wanted friends on Facebook. So this guy had friended me and I, I didn't even know him, but he was telling me about his teaching abroad experience in South Korea. 
And he's like, if you're really unhappy with your job, you should look into teaching abroad. Like, here's the program, check out their locations. So I get on Google and I'd never been to Asia, you know, type in Thailand. And what comes up is all of these images of those beautiful long tail boats that you see in like CoPP. And I was like, hell yes, sign me up. I want to go there. So I applied to this program and got accepted and booked a a one-way flight to Bangkok, like quit the job. And the funny thing is my boss at the time, he, he couldn't understand why I would ever want to do something like that. And he was convinced that I was going to end up in a cage and get sold to the sex trade over there. <laughs> is what he said to me. Now he's my biggest fan. He writes on all my, my Facebook posts that he's so proud of me and like, look what I've done. That's kind of how I got out into the world initially. So what's really interesting to me about that is that you didn't have anyone in your circle that was traveling. You said your family didn't travel. You didn't have peers that were doing this and traveling. You had a correspondence with one person and you saw some pictures and you said, I'm doing this. I mean, that is amazing. And I would love to hear a little bit about that when you reflect back, because I feel like a lot of people... Maybe they'll hear about people doing it. They'll listen to a podcast like this or they'll follow somebody on Instagram, but they don't have anybody in their immediate circle. So whenever they talk to somebody about it, they have a dream, they want to do it. If they don't actually know a person that's doing it, then, you know, maybe their parents or their boss, as Mm -hmm. you said, somebody dissuades them, tells them something dangerous is going to happen to them or that they can't do it or they shouldn't do it. And then they don't do it, right? But you, based on very little information and very little personal connection with people that were doing this just decided that you were going to do it anyways. And I think that is amazing. Can you think back a little bit on that moment and that decision and any reflections that you have about what made you feel that you were just going to do it anyways? Well, here's the thing. So I was 27 at that point when I made that decision and I felt like, you know, I was maybe two two years into my career and you know with 30 slowly approaching I was like shit it's now or never I felt like if I didn't make the decision now I could see myself just getting stuck in that job and like you know that would have been fine it could have been making my you know six figures and sitting pretty but I was never going to be happy yeah I just had that gut feeling where I was like it's now or never I need to pull the trigger and just go and like my mom, she didn't talk to me for a week when she found out that I was applying for this. She was sending me all of these passive aggressive emails of all the bad things happening in Thailand or in Asia just to try and dissuade me. And yeah, I honestly, I don't know where that desire came from and how it was strong enough to like push past all of those people in my life that were like, what the hell are you doing? But yeah, it happened anyway. And then what did you do in Thailand when you got there? What was the plan for income and all that? Right. So the beauty of these programs is that you go and you get your TESOL. You take a course, right, to teach English as a second language. So I spent a month with a group of mostly other Americans. And we all got this certificate that made us eligible to teach. And then the program would place you in a school. So everything was pretty much taken care of for me. Now, mind you, I made peanuts. Like 
It was not a lot of money by Western standards, but it was enough. It was more than enough. Like the very first apartment that I stayed in was $150 a month. If you eat local food, it's probably the equivalent of a dollar for an entire plate full of food. So my expenses were not high. Traveling around Asia, also super easy, super cheap. But (laughs) I will say that the teaching was difficult. Thailand is just a whole different world where there's no real rhyme or reason. Even things that we'd be used to, like you would assume a a school break would have very certain set dates. There's fluctuated. Don't try and book yourself a vacation because they're going to say, oh no, actually it's this week. (laughs) Or like you would just go to class and your kids wouldn't be there. And you're like, where the hell is everybody? Oh, there's this ceremony going on that they conveniently forgot to tell you about. So it was definitely a roll with the punches kind of scenario. I look back at it fondly, but at the time it was really, really difficult. Yeah. What's interesting though, is that that was your initial experience and then you were able to evolve your path and change your course and refine your trajectory until you got to the place that you wanted to be. And I feel like that's an important path to explain story to go through for people because a lot of folks, you know, teaching English in a foreign country is the first step. It's the first thing they do. They want to live outside their home country. Mm -hmm. They want to immerse themselves in a different culture and teaching English is a way to do that. Right. And I think Thailand also has a huge impact on people because the cost of living is so dramatically different than a place like the United States. Right. So coming from Boston to Thailand, which even in a major city in Thailand, like Chiang Mai, you can rent a Mm -hmm. nice studio apartment with all of the utilities included high speed internet and everything else for $300 a month. Right. And then the food is exactly what you're describing. A dollar a meal, two dollars a meal, go to a really nice place, maybe three dollars a meal if you get a seafood uh, dish. Right. (laughs) And all of a sudden you realize you can live a really nice life in Thailand for seventy five hundred bucks a year. Right. And so then your whole perspective changes and the same with the travel, Mm -hmm. as you're saying, right, traveling around Asia from different hubs on an airline like Air Asia. I mean, you're talking about $40 round trip for an international flight. I mean, as soon as you start doing that kind of stuff, people's entire perception of costs and expenses around travel and, you know, all this kind of stuff changes entirely, right? And then from there, you're able to design your path and keep refining things and getting to a place that is a better fit for you, right? For your dream lifestyle. So for you, Lauren, how did your path evolve from there? Well, your former guest, Krista Romano, has had a very big hand in a lot of my life decisions, actually. She's like my little earth angel, honestly. I met her in Bangkok. We're both from Massachusetts and we met for the first time in Bangkok. And she was working for a property magazine. And so she put me in touch with someone she knew that was starting a business. And it turned out that they were franchising Coldwell Banker, which is like a luxury real estate company in Bangkok. And they were hiring. And so they hired a Swiss guy to be the CEO 
And then honestly, they were just looking for like Western faces to be kind of the representatives of this company. And I had real estate experience. So I was kind of a shoe in for the job, but it was this silly thing where I found myself back in the exact same situation that I had run away from. But now I'm just on the other side of the world with a little bit more freedom, you know, and less expenses essentially. So it was good. I had a beautiful office. The job paid well by Thai standards. I was traveling pretty much every weekend, but after a year of it, I realized I just, I did not want that office job. And somehow I ended up right back in it. So I quit. (laughs) And after two years in Thailand, there were a few things that all kind of lined up where the job was not what I wanted anymore. My lease was running out. And then there was somebody that I was dating in Bangkok that was leaving the country and going back to England. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to quit the job and go meet him in England. And it all just kind of worked out that way. But what was serendipitous is that somebody that I had known in Thailand set me up with a remote job with a Thai company, Thai travel company that they needed a native English speaker to do their copywriting for their website. Very simple job. Again, didn't pay a ton of money, but as long as I was strategic about my locations and my spending, it was enough. And I was happy because someone was paying me and I wasn't tied to a desk and I was able to travel the world. So this was my first taste of remote work. And I think I did that probably for seven or eight months before Krista came in, swooped in again and recruited me for the job that I still have now. It's been, I guess, almost three and a half years um, working for Bubble Up and doing digital marketing for this um, organization app. That's amazing. And then in addition to that stream of income, you have also for many years now been building your personal brand on Instagram. You've been doing your blog, which I have now gone through almost all of your content, I think. And it is really spectacular. What I love about your blog is it's not just you writing about your travel experiences and making recommendations for different places around the world and all of that. You are also a photographer and your images Mm -hmm. are spectacular. So each blog post is kind of like this photo journal type of post. And it's been really, really awesome to go through. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's honestly, it, it all started out in 2014 when I went to Thailand just as a way of keeping everybody at home updated on what I was doing. So if you go back to like my very first post, it's kind of like journal style, just documenting my day-to-day experiences teaching, uh, which are really fun actually for me to go back and read. And I think that's why I did it. But eventually, as I started traveling more and taking more pictures, it just evolved into more of like a general travel blog. And it was just, just kind of like a side hobby, something that I enjoyed doing. And it's not Honestly, it, even to this day, it's not like a big money maker for me or anything. I think if anything, like the clout that I've built on Instagram is more beneficial than anything my blog has done. But yeah, affiliate stuff is probably the, the biggest source of income when it comes specifically to the blog. 
Yeah, I want to go through some of your travel experiences, all of which you've documented in your blog, so people can go there and read more about them. But one of the places that you have spent more time than me, for sure, is in Turkey. I have only been to Istanbul, and I love Istanbul. Oh my gosh, I want to go back. (laughs) I think about it often. But I also really want to see other parts of Turkey. And I know you have not only traveled through Turkey, but when you were doing that, you were couch surfing. And I would love for you to share both your reflections on Turkey and also specifically how the couch surfing experience was. And if you can explain what that is for folks that may have never heard of couch surfing. Yeah. Turkey is, oh, it's just one of my favorite countries in the whole wide world. And I just want everybody to go and experience it as I did. Couch surfing, you're staying for free with a very hospitable local is at the bare bones. That's what it is. I think in Turkey, the biggest motivation for hosts is the opportunity to practice their English with somebody. And what's funny is that you sign up for couch surfing, right? And people in Turkey will actually reach out to you and say, hey, I have a place if you want to stay with me. Where normally, I think in most other countries, you're the one reaching out to the host being like, hey, can you put me up for a night, two nights? But it's crazy how the Turkish people just, they really, you know, want that interaction and they're the ones reaching out to you to stay. And so there were three couch surfing experiences. And now I did these all with my ex. I'm not entirely confident that I would have done it by myself. If I had, I probably would have specifically filtered for a female host, which is something that you can do. So he and I, I think the first one was in Cappadocia, which is just one of the world's most incredible places. If you don't know about Cappadocia, it's famous for its hot air balloons. And also these, they call them fairy chimneys. They're these incredible rock formations that, yeah, they look like little chimneys coming out of the ground. And we were there in the winter, which was absolutely fucking freezing. (laughs) Like the coldest I've ever been in my life. I was getting up at sunrise to photograph these balloons, which... Turned out to be some of my best photos I've ever taken, but oh my God, was it cold. And so we stayed with this one guy who, he looked like a, like a Turkish Fabio. Do you remember the, that Fabio guy with the long blonde hair? Yeah. He was like the Turkish version with dark hair and he ran a hostel, but the hostel was closed because it was winter. So he was putting the rooms out for free on couch surfing, which was great because we weren't sleeping on a couch. We had an actual private room with a bathroom. And he just kind of like enveloped us into his little family circle. And we would all hang out by a fire and, you know, share stories and eat food. And just, he he had no reason to do this other than to like meet new people and share experiences and practice his English. And it was just so nice. He would give us rides And not only were we couch surfing, but this was a first for hitchhiking as well, which is very socially acceptable in Turkey. Everybody does it. And it's, it's honestly really safe. I did it a bunch of times, quite far distances. Again, wouldn't do this on my own. Having somebody else was kind of that uh, security. Yeah, that was the the first experience. And then the second one (laughs) was with college students which I went into expecting a certain thing because, you know, my baseline for college students is America 
And we all know what that's like. So I'm envisioning parties and a frat house and chaos and not sleeping. And I'm like, come on, I'm not about this. Like, do we have to do this? He's like, no, no, no. They seem really, really nice. Let's go. Ended up being the sweetest kids ever. Show up. They make us Turkish tea, have cookies. There's like not a beer in sight. Invite us to go rock climbing at their university. Just want to like hang out, share stories. They cooked for us. These are like 19, 20 year old kids. And I'm like, what a cultural disparity between American college students and Turkish college students. So that was a pretty big surprise. And then lastly, we stayed with a family. So this was a big range of experiences. And the family was a young couple, probably like in their mid 30s. And they had an eight-year-old daughter, which I thought was really interesting. Like these people are trusting enough that they invite strangers into their home and, you know, they have a young, impressionable daughter. But they were just really eager to speak English. We felt kind of like adopted for the weekend where they took us to some nearby sites and they like took us to the mall to go to the movies. And it was kind of like being part of a little family for a weekend. So yeah, you can get some really awesome, local, unique experiences if you're open-minded enough to give couch surfing a try. But yeah, you definitely want to be mindful of if you are like a female and it makes you kind of nervous, filter out the male hosts and just go for a female. It'll make you feel a lot better. Yeah. And what an amazing parenting thing that is as well to intentionally expose your kids to other travelers and give your kids a real interactive, dynamic immersion with people from very different cultures from all over the world. I think that is just awesome. Definitely. Yeah. So highly recommend because people are trying to travel cheaply. That's definitely one route for accommodation where you don't have to pay a cent. All right. So I want to also ask you about another place that you and I both love, which is Siem Reap, Cambodia. And I was thinking about this because I get a lot of people asking me for recommendations and, you know, favorite places and all that kind of stuff. And while I would probably say that my favorite overall country in Southeast Asia is Thailand, if somebody was to say to me, I have only four days in the entire region of Southeast Asia, where do you recommend I spend the four days if they've never been there? And I would hands down say Siem Reap, Cambodia is absolutely my top recommendation. So I would love to hear a little bit about your experience there and what you found so unique and spectacular that made you fall in love with Siem Reap. So my trip to Siem Reap was one of my first solo trips ever, aside from like initially going to Thailand. And like you said, perfect for a four-day trip. And I think that's exactly what I did. It was a, a long holiday weekend and I just took the weekend to go. And I think going by myself is actually what made it super magical because my experience was really unique. The Cambodian guy that owned the boutique hotel that I stayed at picked me up from the airport in this like little tuk-tuk thing that I swear to God went five miles an hour. It took us forever to get home from the airport. Cars and other tuk-tuks are flying by us. I'm like, what is wrong with this thing? But anyway, he was very sweet. 
And um, he offered to be my tuk-tuk driver for the entire weekend. And since I was by myself, it was just kind of like this nice little friendship rather than what's typically just a business transaction. You know, this normally you'd have a guy taking around a group, maybe chat a little bit, but ultimately it's kind of like having a wall between you where there's very little interaction. But actually we talked a lot. And I think the craziest thing about the whole experience was that he had never been inside Anchor Wat. He's a local. He's lived there his whole life. He had never actually been inside. Had like, and if anybody who doesn't know, like Anchor Wat is what you go to Siem Reap to see. You would stay in Siem Reap. That's your base. And then you go explore this massive, I don't even know what to call it. Temple complex. Yeah. Anchor Wat is the primary highest profile temple complex in Siem Reap. So that's what most people really know. But the reason I say four days in Siem Reap is because you can get a three-day temple pass. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that some of the other temples other than Angkor Wat itself perhaps blew my mind even more than Angkor Wat did. And what you can do in Siem Reap, as you just said, is you can literally hire a private tuk-tuk just for yourself for probably $20 a day, you hire a driver for eight hours for 20 bucks, right? (laughs) And then you have your private tuk-tuk, your private driver. They just drive you around whichever temples you want to go to. You go in, you spend as much time as you want Mm -hmm. there. You come out when you're hungry, they take you to their restaurant. When you're ready to go to the next temple, they'll take you there. And you just have a private driver that drives you around for eight hours a day. And you do that for three days and you go and see some of the most extraordinary architecture in the world. I had never seen anything even remotely similar to this. There is nothing I can even compare it to. It just blew me away on every level. Yeah, I was I was a kid in a candy store with my camera. I spent so much time just aimlessly wandering around. And when you're by yourself, there's no one's schedule but your own. And it was just such a beautiful thing to wander around and get lost in these temples and take my photos and just not worry about anybody or anything else. And yeah, just to, you know, have his company to come in with me to some of them. It was really nice. And to hear his own personal story, because before I came to Cambodia, I had no idea about the genocide that happened there. Had no idea. And that was actually like a really heartbreaking experience to learn about that and then hear from his perspective, all of these people in his life that, you know, had been killed. And it was like beautiful and educational and emotional and so many things for me. And yeah, just like a standout travel experience for sure. Did you go to Phnom Penh and go to the S21 prison, which is the genocide museum now and the killing fields and all that in Phnom Penh? I did not. Okay. So I lived in Phnom Penh for about a month and I went to the S21 prison and also to the killing fields. The killing fields is where they murdered and buried over a million people. And the S-21 prison was one of the prisons and torture sites that was run by the Khmer Rouge, which has now been transformed into the Genocide Museum. 
And when you go through there, I mean, it is a super intense experience, right? So if you have ever been to, for example, a Holocaust site in Europe, for example, right from the Nazi Holocaust, I've been to like Dachau in Munich, for example. So it is that level of intensity. So just prepare yourself emotionally when you go. But, you know, one of the things that was amazing about the experience that really struck me incredibly powerfully was that after you go through the S21 prison and you see these places and you're reading all the stuff about what happened and everything at the end of it, when you're coming out, they have this really, really important information that they want everybody to take away with them. And they basically say that, listen, we want you to understand that there is absolutely nothing culturally specific about genocide. A genocide can happen in any society, any culture, any religion, at any time. This is not a historical thing of the past. This is not related to any one particular group and no group is exempt from this. It could happen at any time. And they go through and they list all of these historical genocides, including the Native American genocide. And then they list the current genocides that are actively going on today while you are reading this. These genocides are now happening in the world, right? So they take the Cambodian specific experience in the museum, which is what it's all about, right? And then they globalize it and encourage people to be both vigilant about their own cultures and potential propensity for this to happen, as well as to stand up and oppose the current genocides that are going on in the world today. So it was a super, super powerful experience. I mean, once you leave, they're like definitely like plan to just spend like the first half of your day at the museum and then just like give yourself the second half of the day to just like reflect on stuff and process it emotionally because it's super intense, but it's a really important piece of history. And it's a very recent piece of history, right? Like the Cambodian genocide happened in the late 1970s, but the prosecution of the war criminals who were involved in committing the genocide is still going on in the 2000s, mm. right? So very recently, they're still doing trials and all of that kind of stuff. So this is a super recent thing, as you said, you know, that happened in the lifetime of, you know, adult Cambodians that are living there now. So it's a super, super important and powerful piece of history, I think, for people to see and understand. And I definitely recommend that anybody that goes to Phnom Penh definitely, I mean, prepare yourself emotionally, but I think it's a really important thing to experience. Yeah. And there's a book, I don't know if you read First They Killed My Father. Really, really powerful read about the whole situation written from the perspective of a survivor. Um, she was a child when it happened. So it's kind of written from a child's perspective. But yeah, really, really good way of kind of getting educated on that. So I also wanted to ask you about, you mentioned that as you're traveling around, sometimes you're traveling with a relationship partner. Sometimes if you're single, you're doing solo travel and sometimes you do community travel as well. You've plugged into work travel groups like Wi-Fi Tribe, which Maverick Show listeners know Diego, the co-founder of Wi-Fi Tribe, who I interviewed back on episode 74. And I'm also friends with uh, the other co-founder, Julia. Uh, she and I have hung out in a number of places around the world. So all good friends there. But I would love to just sort of 
talk through some of those different travel experiences. And maybe let's just start with the community travel experience, plugging into a work travel program. I would love to hear how your experience was with Wi-Fi Tribe. Yeah. So the Wi-Fi Tribe was actually exactly what I needed when I first got my my job with Bubble Up, my full-time remote job. I was in Chile. I was in Valparaiso. And I was by myself and I was just desperate for some community. And I had friends that had done the Wi-Fi tribe. So it, it came highly recommended. And I'm like, this sounds perfect. And they were going to be in Ecuador at the perfect time. So I had my interview, signed up, went and met them in Ecuador. There were, it was actually quite a small tribe for that one. I think 14 of us stayed in this little town outside of Montanita, which is like this surfer town on the coast. Um, (laughs) It rained every single day (laughs) that month. We got a lot of work done, but it was just a super fun experience to find that many like-minded individuals. I'd never heard about this kind of thing before. I didn't understand co-living, co-working. And so for that door to open, I was like, oh my God, there's so many other people working remotely and oh, they move locations every month. What a fantastic way to see the world. And you can, you know, hop on when you want and you can hop off and do your own thing when you want. Just, you know, keep an eye on the calendar and join the locations that, you know, seem interesting. So I actually did two back to back. It was Ecuador and then we went straight to Costa Rica to Santa Teresa, which I loved it. A month there was paradise. We had so much fun. It's like a raw, rugged little town with one road going through it. And it's the worst road that you will ever travel in your life. So if you want to get from one end to the other, give yourself a lot of time and get a four wheeler. But it was kind of, it was that ruggedness that I loved about it. And how did you find the community dynamic of that program because I have done a number of these work travel programs. I did remote year where I went around the world for a year and lived in a different city every month for 12 months with the same group of people for the entire year. I've also done shorter term work travel programs like Hacker Paradise. And I have always found that it's been really nice to have that community base, right? You can go to a brand new place that you've never been to, and there's a community of people there that are always, you can always find somebody to go do whatever you want to do with, or go out to dinner, or go see this thing, whatever it may be. There's always people there that are excited to hang out with you and do things and explore the city with you if you want to, right? Now, that doesn't mean you have to hang out with the community the whole time. You're not committed to that. You know, if you want to spend more alone time, some people are introverted, they need more time alone, or, you know, you want to go out and meet locals or, you know, date locals or things like that. You can do whatever you want, but the community is just there as a base to the extent that you want to spend time with those folks. And I have always found that that is just a really, really nice base to have when traveling around the world and exploring new places. Yeah, 100%. And I think I was I was that person that was kind of doing my own thing and like going on dates and stuff in new places, but also like going to get dinner with everybody most nights of the week. And we'd all go on adventures together on the weekend because that's kind of the thing, right? You're 
working hard during the week. And then on the weekend, everybody just goes and fucks off and does whatever fun thing there is to do in that location. But I think the best part about it is that let's say there's 20 people in your group, you just made 19 new friends. So chances are they're from many different places. So the next time you go to a new country, either maybe they're there or they know somebody that's there. It's just your your whole network just explodes. It's exponential because you know, you talk to one of those people and you're like, hey, I'm going to Madrid. And they're like, oh, my brother's best friend lives in Madrid. Here's his number. You know, and it always works this way. And then you're just constantly making new friends that originated from like this small little circle of like 20 people. Right. And a lot of these groups have alumni networks. So even if you didn't meet a particular person, you both have that in common that you did the program and you're in an alumni network, right? So you have that base of commonality. And so people are just communicating with the alumni networks of these programs, right? And so I've now done multiple programs. So I'm in multiple alumni networks. So, you know, you and I now have these huge international digital nomad social communities that we're in virtually. And anywhere we go in the world, we can just say, hey, who knows people here or who is currently in this country or who would like to do a trip and go to this country and put a crew together, you know, and no matter where we're trying to go, uh, we can always find people or put people together to go and experience that place, which has been really, really awesome. Right. So people that are just getting started with remote work, it's just such a good way to enter the world of traveling while working because a lot of people are terrified to just go by themselves and pick a place. But you know, if you do one of these kind of co-living, co-working groups, it's only going to help you and build your network. Yeah, for sure. Well, I also want to ask you about dating in this lifestyle. And you've mentioned a couple scenarios. You've mentioned traveling with a relationship partner. You've also mentioned dating locals. And I know you've been traveling full-time around the world since 2014. And I would love to just ask for your reflections and thoughts and tips and advice about dating and relationships and finding love in this lifestyle. Yeah. So this is, this is a tricky one. I'm still single. I have traveled in a relationship and that was quite short-lived. I think it's really difficult to be with somebody 24-7. You need your own space and time and kind of your own life. And if you're full-time traveling together, it gets kind of intertwined and it's kind of difficult to separate yourselves. So for the majority of my time abroad, I think I have been single. And dating apps have actually been such, I don't know, such a fun thing to explore while traveling because meeting a local, it opens up your world. It completely changes a location for you. I'm a strong believer in instinct. So I think I'm a pretty decent judge of character. There's been a couple instances where that may not hold true, but for the most part, good judge of character. And so I've done some really fun things that might sound crazy, but for example, when I was living in Thailand, I was 
talking to a guy that was living in England and we just clicked instantly. And for two weeks, whenever he was awake and I was awake, we were chatting, we were FaceTiming. And it turned out that we both had a week off and he invited me to meet him in Spain because his family owned a restaurant and had a house in Spain. And so I flew from Bangkok to Malaga to meet this guy for the first time. Our first meeting was in the airport. And yeah, it was a huge leap of faith. Didn't work out in the end, but I do not regret the experience whatsoever. And I just think a lot of times people aren't willing to, like if you have a good feeling about someone, they're not willing to make these big gestures. And so what if it doesn't work out? Like you just had an amazing experience and you have a story to tell afterwards. So I just, I think people need to be more open-minded and like take those big risks when something good crosses their path. Another kind of strange example, but um, when I was in Mexico, I met a Mexican artist on Tinder or Bumble or whatever I was using at the time. And apparently the day we started talking, he had intended to leave Mexico City, where we were, to go to his country house. But he told me if I was free to hang out that night that he would stay. So I agreed to go to dinner. We had a really nice night. He asked me if I would like to go with him to the country house the next day. And I had no plans in Mexico City. I generally don't have plans when I travel. I like to just, you know, see how things go because when spontaneous fun arises, you can say yes. And so I did. So I went with this Mexican artist out into the Mexican countryside and stayed in his beautiful house, like out in the mountains. There was this cute little Pueblo nearby and he'd just be in this studio painting his paintings and was like cooking me dinner every night. And it was so much fun. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think so two different examples that you gave there, right? Which I think are both interesting and important, right? One is the concept of dating locals, which I think is an amazing thing, right? For single people to do, because it's such a great way to really connect with the place that you are and really get a feel for the local culture. And even if it doesn't work out in a romantic sense, you still had a great evening and a great time with the local person. And you really had a, an amazing immersion into that particular culture of the place where you are. You got to hear someone's story and their perspective about the city that they live in and that they're from and all of that. Like what an amazing conversation, whether or not it has any romantic outcome at all. So I think that, you know, dating locals is an amazing thing to do when you travel and it, it's never disappointing if it's not a romantic outcome or whatever, because it's always just a really great, interesting cultural immersion experience. And it's also lessons learned. Like when you're dating all of these different types of people and all of these different nationalities, it's helping you determine like what you're looking for at the end of the day. I mean, another example that comes to mind is I had met this Italian guy in Pisa and the timing was very strange where we spent a few days together in Pisa and then I was flying to Sicily and he happened to be flying to Sicily the same weekend for his cousin's communion. Now, I think in the States, if you get invited to meet the parents, 
week one, you would run in the opposite direction as fast as you can. But for whatever reason, in Italian culture, it's like, here's my mom. (laughs) So he invited me to stay with him and his parents down in Sicily. I've known this guy for like five days. They don't speak a word of English. So all of our meals together, he's just sat there translating for us. They fed me horse at dinner. That was a new one. And the next day, I accompanied him to his cousin's communion, which then ended in a celebration with about 100 of his Italian family members, none of which spoke English. And I just sat there and smiled and wondered how the hell I got here. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so awesome. The other example that you gave, which was about dating other travelers, right? I mean, that I think is also significant because there you have a situation where someone has already achieved the same lifestyle and are obviously motivated by presumably the same values that inspired them to create it. So you know that there's a level of compatibility there if you want to travel the world with somebody, that they have the flexibility and the location independence to do that with you. And so I think that's when you're looking into the traveler community and these different communities that are coming together and bringing travelers and digital nomads and remote workers and all that kind of stuff, that particular dating pool, you also know that there's already a huge foundation that you share in common and that if something works and there's a compatibility there, you can just take off and be together and keep traveling the world. Right. Which is amazing. The only thing, and I I can't seem to like figure this out or like find the balance because I don't know about you, but I like my space. Like I need my alone time. I think I'm probably a bit more introverted than extroverted. And yeah, if you're, if you find that person and you're off traveling together, I know I get to a point where I'm just like, whoa, give me a little bit of space. That is actually a really good point. I'm going to frame this a different way. Okay. (laughs) Which is that... If you meet someone, right, like let's say you do, whether it's the work travel program or this or that, or some kind of traveler network, and you meet somebody else that's location independent and is a digital nomad, and they can travel wherever, and you meet them, and there's a strong connection in the place where you meet them, right? If you're both itinerant nomads, you're both are probably only planning to stay there for however long, and then you have a choice to make, which is, okay, do we now keep seeing each other? And if so, pretty much the way you do that is you're going to travel together, which basically means you're moving in together, right? So that's what it does, right? It's like zero to 60, like immediately. It's like, okay, things are going well. We've been on a few dates. And now if we want to continue dating, we need to move in together. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. It's basically what it is, right? Accelerates the process so quickly and puts a lot of pressure on two people. Right. But it's like, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because in that situation, it's a lot of pressure. But also, if you're trying to date someone as a nomad, and they're the stable person in a city, same problem, where you're like, oh, am I going to stay here for you? And then that puts a massive amount of pressure on them that you just moved to their city, essentially, to be with them. Right. So like, I can't figure out how to win here, (laughs) (laughs) which honestly, so I just, I've been traveling full time for like six years now. I just chose a base, right? I 
got an apartment. I got residency in Amsterdam. And I think a big draw to this whole idea of, I hate saying settling down, but you know, finding a base was to give myself the opportunity to have more meaningful relationships in kind of a normal scenario where you have your apartment, I have my apartment, we can date like normal people and see where this goes. Cause I haven't done that in so long. And it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting me. to see how it turns out because I feel like, you know, a lot of people that I know that live, whatever you want to call it, right. Non-nomadic traditional sort of lives are not necessarily having a better time with the dating than any of the nomads that I know either, right? So that's why, but there are different dynamics, right? Like dating as a nomad, like there are particular dynamics there that are different for sure. And so you have to be attentive to those. You have to navigate those. It doesn't mean it's harder or easier per se. I mean, one of the things that I think is easier about it is just the location independence that we have, right? The freedom of mobility that we have. If we meet somebody and we want to be with them, we have the choice and the ability to move to wherever that person is, travel with that person, do the thing and and all that, whereas most people don't, right? right? Like if most people have a house and a job and an office and a this and a dog and a whatever, you know, and they live their life and somebody comes through on vacation and they meet this person out at a place and that person is just there on vacation and they say, oh, I have to go home to my home country. I'm just here for a week. And they fall madly in love with them. They can't go be with that mm-hmm. person. You know what I mean? Whereas we could go be with that person. (laughs) You know what I mean? If it was, if we wanted to, right? So we do have the incredible flexibility to be able to choose to be with a much larger dating pool of of human beings. Like most regular people that live a a regular sedentary, non-nomadic life, their dating pool is literally the human beings that are driving distance from their house, right? That's Mm -hmm. the only people they have the ability to date, whereas you and I have the entire planet of Earth as our dating pool, right? right? But I almost wonder if those people that, you know, their dating pool is geographically determined, if they're going to have an easier, happier life. Because when you have a dating pool that is the whole entire world, I don't want to say that I'm insatiable, but in a way I've just met so many different types of people with so many different qualities that you almost want to like cherry pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that and form your perfect human. It's like, I've seen, I know too much. I've seen too much. It's messing me up. That's that's true. That's true. Yes. Your, your standards can raise uh, higher than they normally would is what you're talking about, right? If you've only seen local folks that are from your town that are probably, you know, versus if you've seen all these people from all over the world and there's attractive qualities that you're like, oh, I've never met somebody that has that quality before. Like, I want that and this and this and this. And now all of a sudden you have this, uh, you know, this super revised dating criteria. That's amazing. Yep. Kind of sucks. <laughs> That's amazing. So, all right. I also want to ask you though, for your any specific tips that you have for female solo travelers? Because I know you've done, in addition to the community travel and traveling with a partner, you've also done a lot of solo travel to a lot of different types of places in the world. And for women in particular that are getting into this lifestyle, they might be at the earlier stage. Maybe they're hearing some of the stuff that you know people told you when you were starting out or whatever. What tips do you have for female solo travelers in particular? So the first one that comes to mind There is a Facebook group 
called generically Girls Love Travel. And what Girls Love Travel is, it's a community of over a million women that obviously love travel. And so in the past, if you pop in there and you say, hey, ladies, I'm going to Peru. Is anybody else in town, this date to this date? You're likely going to get at least a handful of people because there's so many women in there that are also going to be there. And I think like a lot of women are terrified to go travel because, you know, their friends backed out and there's no one to go with them. And even though you're going alone, you don't ever have to be alone if you don't want to be. So networking through Facebook groups like this is a great way to find people on the ground when you get there. Um, You can also check out like location-specific expat groups. There's always Facebook groups for expats and meet people that way. Staying in hostels, I don't tend to do anymore, but I did in the beginning. And obviously that's a great way to meet other solo travelers. I would also, if you're a person that likes you know, privacy and needs to work from home and stuff. Private rooms and Airbnbs is kind of a nice in-between sometimes if you get a local host. I've done that a few times. So you're not going into a situation completely alone. You at least have like that local, that point of contact. Sometimes they're super nice and they want to show you around their city. Sometimes not, but at least there's somebody else there. I would be thoughtful about location selection as a single female. I wish I could say that we can go anywhere that we want when we want, but I don't think that's the reality of the situation. So you've been in Brazil. I don't know that I would have gone to Brazil by myself for the first time as a solo female. Even with other people, I found it a little intimidating. But then, you know, you go south to Argentina in spent time in Buenos Aires by myself and I was completely fine. So just being mindful of kind of the general safety situations in some of these countries, because you don't want to find yourself in a place where you've scared yourself out of travel because you chose a country that maybe wasn't the safest for a solo female. I think that makes a lot of sense. And especially for folks that are newer at the travel thing. I think talking to other women, like you said, it's a really good thing. Like surrounding yourself with other solo female travelers. Like I have interviewed a lot of solo female travelers on this podcast that are just amazing. They've been doing it for a long time. They have had great you know, tips and they have great information on their Instagrams and their websites and their blogs, just like you do. Right. I mean, so following you on Instagram, reading all of your blog posts and then subscribing and getting all of your new posts and and following you and other uh, female travel influencers, right? We have a lot of those uh, friends in common, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to do it because then all of a sudden you're saying, okay, wow, here's all these people that are doing it and here's all their tips and here's all their experiences and here's where they went. And by the way, you could probably reach out to these people if you wanted a a tip on going to this place or that place, uh, you know, and really get kind of some feedback. So I think that's, Really, really good advice. All right, Lauren, I want to ask you one more thing just before we move into lightning round and wrap this up, which is when you reflect back on all of the travel that you've now done 50 plus countries, why do you continue to travel? What do you get out of it? What does travel mean to you? Hmm. 
honestly, I think it's become kind of an addiction. <laughs> like, I don't know how to stay in one place for very long. Like, like I said, I just, I got this base in Amsterdam, right? And three weeks later, I was on a plane and all have been gone for a month, which, yeah, it's just silly. I, I crave it and I feel like I get kind of a, a high off of it almost. And I mean, what it does first and foremost, it just, it opens your mind, right? And you just create these valuable connections with people that you would never have met otherwise. If you stay in your comfort zone, you're just never going to meet these people. It's inspiration for my photography. There's nothing I love more in this world than taking photos. And so seeing new places and having that kind of fresh content just it gives me life. <laughs> That's a really good answer. I love that. All right, Lauren, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? I am ready. The lightning round. What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years that you'd most recommend people check out? If you are at all spiritual or into psychology, there is a book called Many Lives, Many Masters. And it has to do with a psychologist and past lives. And so if you have any belief in that kind of stuff, it's just the most interesting thing that will rock your world. Amazing. Cool. All right, Lauren, who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with just you and that person for a one-on-one -on -one evening of dinner and conversation? The first person that comes to mind is Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> I love her and I have watched her show for years, but I need to know if all of this recent controversy about her is true. All these people are coming out saying that like, she's not a very good person and it makes my heart sad. Fair enough. Yes, that would be a very interesting dinner and conversation for sure. All right, knowing everything that you know now, if you were able to go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Lauren? I would tell 18-year-old Lauren that traditional life paths are completely unnecessary and to stop getting all worked up about everything. You don't need to go to college and get your two bachelor's degrees. That was just a silly overachievement. Like your life path is completely negotiable and it doesn't have to be this set thing that your parents tell you it has to be. And I just, I had no idea that the life I'm living now was a possibility. Had no idea. So I would tell myself that that's a possibility. That's awesome. All right. What is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? House sitting. 100%. Rent-free accommodation around the world, people. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. How do you find that? There is a website called trustedhousesitters.com, amongst others, but that's the one that I use. Um, I think it's the most legit. And you'll find things from six months in Fiji to a week in London. I've done house sitting in Turkey, in England, a few places in California and San Francisco, which is so expensive. So when you get one of these house sitting jobs for a week, you've just 
saved yourself a lot of money. And you get to hang out with cute pets because they call it house sitting, but really it's actually pet sitting. So that's amazing. That's an awesome tip. All right. Of all the places that you've been, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you'd most recommend people check out? Greece, South Africa, and Portugal. Nice. Are there any particular places within those countries that you would say definitely people should for sure go to when they go to those countries? So I did a road trip through central Greece, which I think most people just go to like Athens and Santorini, but there are some amazing places in central Greece, uh, one of which is called Meteora, which I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's otherworldly. There's these monasteries on top of these massive rocks that look like they'd be impossible to get to. And then also Zakynthos in Greece was one of the most beautiful places that I've seen. Nice. That is awesome. All right. Final question. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been. They're the highest on your list you would most love to see. Iceland. I cannot believe that I have not been to Iceland yet. Hoping to make that happen soon since it's not going to be too far from home base. Also, Jordan. And lastly, the Seychelles. And it's because there is one beach there that looks like the most amazing beach on earth. I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. It begins with a D. But yep, those are the top three. That is awesome. I have never been to Iceland either, so don't feel bad. Really? Yeah, it's on my list as well. I've heard amazing things, of course, but I have not yet been there. And I have not yet been to the Seychelles either, but you are correct. They are supposed to have some of the most gorgeous beaches on the planet of Earth. For folks that aren't familiar with the Seychelles, it's an African archipelago, which you can just Google pictures of and have your minds blown. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So those are two that are on my list. I did Jordan just briefly. I've been to Petra for like a day, but I haven't even been to Amman and, you know, spent quality time in Jordan. So I would love to post up there. I mean, I've been to Lebanon, I've been to Palestine, I've spent probably about a year in Egypt. So love, love, love the Middle East region. And Jordan is is one of the countries that I haven't given its proper time and uh, appreciation and immersion to. So I think that's another really, really good pick. So amazing. All right, Lauren, this has been so fun. So fun. I want you to let people know how they can find you, follow you on social media, read your awesome blog. How do you want people to come into your universe? Yeah, so I'm Girl Gone Abroad pretty much everywhere. On Instagram, blog is girlgoneabroad.com. The only thing that's different, I think, is Facebook, where I am Girl Gone Abroad blog. So yeah, if you were literally to Google Girl Gone Abroad, you're going to find me in all the places. That's so awesome. All right. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So all of the stuff that we talked about, including Lauren's recommendations and all of her contact info, you can find it at themaverickshow.com. Um, Lauren, this was so amazing. Thank you for coming on the show. So much fun. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.